0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm here today at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in Washington, D.C. I'm delighted to be joined by Bonnie Glaser, Senior Advisor for Asia and Director of the China Power Project. Bonnie's vast and deep knowledge of China security issues is pretty obvious, I think, from the questions that she asks as host of the Terrific China Power podcast, which is a podcast produced here at CSIS, along with now, How many now? I You said how many podcasts? We
1: have about two dozen here at oh CSIS. Oh, my God.
0: Wow, that's amazing. But anyway, uh, this is the, the standout, I uh, humbly assert, uh, which I, I hope that you're all listening to already. Uh, but today, I want to turn the tables on Bonnie and do the asking, get her to share some of her insights to both the China Power and Seneca audiences. So, Bonnie, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join.
1: Thanks for having me on the Seneca podcast,
0: Kaiser. And thanks for having me on on China Power. That's a cool little crossover we're doing, <laughs> uh, Bonnie. Let's start with the Korean Peninsula. Uh, before this podcast, uh, you had protested that you don't know more than maybe the public reporting about the on again, off again nature of of the US DPRK summit, which was originally scheduled for June twelfth in Singapore. And how all that relates to the ongoing negotiations over trade, over technology, and uh, other issues between the US and China. Now, I mean, Trump has made it pretty explicit, as you've pointed out, that there is a linkage between North Korean security and the US China trade talks. You know, I I think we're all used to the transactional nature of this president and this presidency, so maybe we're not surprised. But I'm trying to figure out still how this has all played out. And I I, I get that you don't want to just speculate, and I respect, you know, and I won't ask you to just do that. um, Certainly I think that your, your instincts are probably, your hunches are just more much better informed than mine are, or I dare say, than most of the people out there. And no one's gonna hold you to anything, but I do wanna hear your take on where we are with prospects for a summit actually happening and for any meaningful progress, more generally, on stabilizing the, the, the region.
1: Well, it looks to me like the summit is back on. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has talked to the press and he has indicated that the summit is a go. Uh, and so I think at this point uh, it, it is likely to happen And now we can really turn to the question of what the outcomes are likely to be. There are various uh, you know scenarios. I recall, in my younger days when Gorbachev from the former Soviet Union and President Reagan emerged from their summit in Reykjavik and announced that they were going to eliminate all nuclear weapons Um, and that didn't happen. (laughs) So it's possible they could emerge from this summit and uh, agree to something that ultimately their uh, respective political systems will and in our case democracy will not support. Uh, but you know a good good scenario a good outcome is uh, that they do agree on uh, a definition of denuclearization we've We've heard in the last couple of days that Kim jong-un understands that the United States wants complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear weapons. That has long been the US definition. It remains the Trump administration's uh, goal. And understands, uh, sounds almost like US-China joint communique language. Deliberately ambiguous. ambiguous. So we'll have to see whether or not Kim Jong-un actually agrees to take steps towards that goal. Uh, Whether there is uh, agreement on opening negotiations, which countries will be at the table, what the shape of the table will be, where those negotiations would take place. But we've tried this with North Korea in different ways, of course, in the past. Uh, They have, for the most part, failed, although sometimes there have been some agreements that have made progress and then later on fell apart. But there is a good potential, I think, for uh, a positive outcome. But we have to be very, very skeptical here. Uh, North Korea uh, has an enormous uh, inventory of weapons, of fissile material, uh, of uh, explosive uh, sites, uh, all of the places that they have used to develop missiles and nuclear weapons. All of those have to be declared. And then, of course, there have to be inspectors. And in the past, at least one U.S.-North Korean agreement fell apart on the basis of the lack of willingness of North Korea to allow in inspectors. So we will never get, and from my perspective, a complete verifiable, irreversible dismantlement, CVID, because North Korea has made too much progress. But we could achieve something, and that's the big question. How far can we get?
0: Physical materials, I think, on order of something like what, Forty kilograms of, of enriched uranium or plutonium. I, I I've heard this just from some of the the people who I, I'm, I'm spacing his name right now. Um, he was on NPR not too long ago talking about twenty five possibly. We are um, probably
1: talking about hacker Yeah, that's right. Seghecker. Yes, that's and right, he had visited right. uh, one of the uh, the. Facilities in North Korea, so he is the really the only American who's gotten in and seen these uranium enrichment facilities, or what may have been a replica of a facility. And uh, he believes uh, that he has some ideas as to how much fissile material they have. I'm sure there's intelligence community estimates as well. But the other thing that Sig Hecker says that's important is that it probably would take about 15 years to really get rid of all of North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons, fissile material, and that doesn't include the scientists that actually built the program. And do they remain in North Korea? Uh, Do they have other jobs? I was in China recently, and a Chinese physicist uh, who does now international relations issues, and uh, especially Korea, raised the possibility of inviting all of these North Korean nuclear scientists to China and giving them jobs in a lab doing productive <laughs> work. Um, I guess that would help to achieve CVID if they were really out of the country.
0: Right. Take them out of the picture one way or another. The summary though, uh, really rests a lot on atmospherics. Do you think that the atmospherics of this still have, I mean, have they been poisoned now by, by so much sort of mutual recrimination back and forth, talk of Libya models and the Iran pullout and so forth? Uh, or do you think that there's a possibility of this happening and the, the optics of the whole thing coming off very positively and, and le- letting everyone sort of take a deep breath and uh, let out a sigh of relief?
1: I think that's what President Trump wants. Yeah. I, I'm i reluctant to say that the atmosphere has been poisoned because the depth of suspicion in the U.S.-North Korea relationship is so deep to begin with. That's and right. I am sure that Kim Jong-un is not naive. He's uh, undoubtedly very, very well informed, uh, maybe more so than President Trump. So I think that... B- at least Kim, possibly I hope President Trump, will go into these talks with their eyes open, uh, that they will both be very skeptical that they'll be able to get what they want, uh, but they will at least have some very clear objectives, some bottom lines, uh, be clear about what their interests are and what is unacceptable to both of them. Uh, But let's remember, this is not a negotiation. It's just a discussion between two leaders.
0: That's right. Let's do a little exercise in in cognitive empathy and try to get ourselves into Kim Jong-un's head and then maybe do the same for a couple of the other people involved and maybe enumerate at least some of the factors that are really top of mind for Kim. Um, how much, for instance, does the pullout from the Iran deal weigh on him right now? How much does uh, the invocation of the Libya model uh Weigh on him. Um, are are these factors in Kim's thinking? I mean, there are others that I, I'm sure that people aren't thinking about, or at least aren't articulating. Like his domestic considerations; those must be very, very large. Uh, his, his you know obviously there's his relationship with China, which is you know going to be at the core of a lot of this discussion. Uh, what are we not seeing in the analysis that we've been reading that we maybe ought to be thinking about?
1: Well, I have to caveat this by saying that I am a China expert, not a North Korea expert. And it is very difficult, I think, to get into the mind of Kim Jong-un. But I think most experts agree that regime survival is really the top concern, and maybe even number two and three as well, uh, for Kim Jong-un. But he has demonstrated that as a young leader, uh, very inexperienced Somebody who our intelligence community predicted, I think early on, would never last in power, uh, that he's actually uh, quite capable, uh, ruthless domestically. Absolutely. Uh, but he's also able. To deal with some of these diplomatic challenges. Let's remember, he's gone from being a pariah, essentially, in the international community in a matter of months to being the most sought after leader uh, <laughs> in Northeast Asia. You know, he's met with President Moon twice, Xi Jinping twice, uh, and now we'll be meeting uh, with President Trump and probably after that, Prime Minister Abe. Uh, so this guy has become enormously popular. And I think that he really wants to uh, manipulate these relationships so that he can extract the maximum concessions for his country. That means for him, uh, doing the least, uh, I personally am skeptical that he will give up his nuclear weapons. Uh, Maybe he will begin to dismantle parts of the program, but Mm -hmm. I don't think he will give up the entire program or the weapons. Uh, But he is certainly looking for the lifting of sanctions by the international community. He wants to get economic assistance uh, and recognition. Uh, A peace treaty is also a goal that he would like. I mean, let's remember the Korean War really didn't come to an end. There's been an armistice in place. And there, I think, uh, some people believe that Kim really has a goal of getting the United States off the peninsula. But I myself am skeptical. I've talked to people who've negotiated with the North Koreans who say that North Korea, a small country living next to China, like all of the other small countries that reside next to China, want to have powerful friends that are far away, uh, but that can be a balancer and provide some stability. So that, at least in the near term, this will not be a top priority for Kim Jong-un. And I see some evidence to support that. Kim had said uh, to the South Koreans that he understands that U.S. rock military exercises will continue. That's very interesting yeah. because yeah. Xi Jinping has called for there a freeze for freeze. Right, the double freeze. The right. double freeze. So. Instead, Kim unilaterally said, I will freeze my nuclear tests and missile tests, and and he dropped the demand. I think that was a slap in the face to to Xi Jinping. I do. I can't help but think so. So I think um, that may not be a priority for Kim.
0: No, in my most sort of optimistic, and maybe more wildly so, uh, hopes, could, could this be an opening for a moment like 72 was in China, where... There's a a palpable sea change where suddenly uh, the possibilities for significant change uh, open up. Those horizons just suddenly blow up. So you could see a sort of China-like reform movement take shape uh, with with Kim Jong Un's blessing. Is that is that in the cards?
1: I'm skeptical. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm glad that there are idealists like you out there, Kaiser. Uh, we need those uh, people who are very optimistic. But I believe that if Kim Jong Un opens his country in the way that China did in the 1970s, that ultimately it will implode. Hmm. And I think it's just too risky for him.
0: He's probably thinking the same thing. Let's put ourselves into Xi Jinping's head, or into you know the Chinese leadership's head. As they contemplate the situation in North Korea, what should we understand about their thinking? Again, emphasizing the things that aren't talked about sort of routinely already. What, what insights might you be able to to, to provide about how Xi is, is calculating?
1: I think that Xi Jinping has probably personally been concerned about the deteriorating relationship between China and North Korea. Uh, since he came to power. And he opted to work with uh, the United States, first under Obama to some extent, uh, and then, uh, of course, when President Trump came to power to really squeeze North Korea. And he saw that that relationship really hit bottom. And I think that he likely began to wonder whether that deterioration was harmful to China. And I think that that concern that he probably had was borne out when President Trump suddenly said that he was going to meet with Kim Jong-un. Right. And then Xi Jinping moved very quickly to position China so that it would not lose influence over the course of developments on the Korean Peninsula. Because after all... China must have some influence over that situation because if the ground begins to shift, if all of a sudden there's a new geopolitical landscape on the Korean Peninsula, China has to be able to shape the situation so that it serves Chinese interests. And so I think that explains why we have seen these two summits. Uh, there's conflicting evidence out there now about whether China has begun to ease the sanctions on on North Korea. It looks like there's more activity, trucks going across the bridge, but mm-hmm. I think it's inconclusive. And so I think Xi Jinping doesn't really trust President Trump. Mm-hmm. The Chinese are worried, and long have been, that one day they will wake up and the United States and North Korea will become best buddies.
0: They'll be completely marginalized and yeah. And
1: China will just be on the outside and maybe even North Korea could become something like an ally of the US and and that that could be really harmful to Chinese interests. And I think most Americans hear that And they laugh. And that sounds so ridiculous from our point of view, because we've had such a bad relationship with North Korea for so long. But I think the Chinese have always feared this. And now they see this unpredictable president in the United States who prioritizes building relationships with leaders. I think Xi Jinping knows how that has worked between him and Trump. And I really do think he's worried about what could come out of this summit.
0: I think they see an historical parallel or a possible historical parallel to the, the Nixon Kissinger opening to, to China and how that was you know using a country that had uh, animosity with, with the US' major rival, suddenly flipping that relationship and enlisting them sort of as an ally. And That's uh, quite
1: possible. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that the, the Chinese uh, have long memories, yes. <laughs> and I think that they've studied the United States very deeply, and they probably are quite concerned that we
0: could pull something similar. Trump is a Nixonian figure in some ways in, in that, you know, the sort of madman theory mm-hmm. and, and all that. Uh, only Trump could go to North Korea, maybe. Uh, but you, you, you mentioned the uncertainty over how much leverage China actually has or how much they're willing to exert. And, and that's been one of the big subjects of debate within our community, right? I've heard people argue it has all, you know, a, a lot more influence than, than anyone has been admitting to. China, of course, has been protesting, and many people have agreed that it has much less influence than we've probably assumed. You have uh, your own ideas about this, and, and I was hoping that you could share them with us. Uh, What what leverage China really does have?
1: Well, when it comes to economic leverage, the Chinese still have an enormous amount of leverage. I remember President Trump using the figure 93% of North Korea's trade goes through China. Uh, I had always thought people said somewhere between 85 and 90, so maybe it's increased further. Uh, but obviously, North Korea uh, knows that if China really wants to turn the screws on them, that they can do it. And the master
0: screw being oil, right?
1: Oil in particular, yeah. uh, but certainly other things. And the Chinese have provided food aid to North Korea. Not as important in recent years. I mm-hmm. think the Chinese are producing more food, and the Chinese economy, the North Korean economy, has uh, improved. Uh, recently as well. And uh, that is in part because Kim Jong-un has allowed these markets to flourish that really started under his father, but he has now tried to clamp down on them. But of course, they need Chinese goods that come into these markets in order for for them to really be profitable and, and to work in the economy. But yes, the oil the Chinese have, uh, I think, uh, been completely unwilling to shut down. We know that the United States raised this up at the UN, and the Chinese were adamant uh, that their deliveries of oil that they give to North Korea, which, by the way, the North Koreans don't pay anything for, uh, was something that they were not willing to put on the table. And I think it was in 2013 that the Chinese actually – Uh, took the oil off the books. We used to be able to see it in the the customs data. You could see what had been exported, imported. Now the Chinese don't even report it. Uh, They don't deny that they export it, but it's uh, probably because they want to Uh, put the veil over what they are doing so that if they cut it back or increase it, that nobody knows how much they're sending each month. So the lack of transparency, I think, is really a problem. But the point here is... That the Chinese have the economic leverage. They don't want to see instability in North Korea. So they've always prioritized stability. And the ordering of their priorities is no war, no instability, denuclearization. And so, under the condition that there is stability in North Korea, then they can begin to pressure North Korea. And so that means there's a limit to how much pressure they will give because they don't want to be the the cause of the instability. And I think the North Koreans know that. Mm -hmm. They've seen that Mm -hmm. policy over the years. And that means North Korea has more leverage than China has. Uh, And I think they've actually used it to some effect uh, at times. Uh, So this is what I call potential leverage, but they really have been uh, really unwilling to use it. Uh, except for, of course, the last year where we've seen increased willingness to use this leverage, but still with a limit. So again, I think that um, this economic leverage doesn't translate into what it could uh, translate into for, for China's influence over North Korea if they did not care about instability that could lead to implosion. As far as political leverage goes, That really deteriorated uh, beginning in uh, 2006, when the Chinese uh, reacted fairly strongly to the first nuclear test. And then the relations deteriorated. Then they improved for a while in 2009. So we've seen a sort of up and down. But then, since Xi Jinping came to power, uh, the political relationship really declined, and so I see the willingness now of Xi Jinping to meet with Kim Jong Un twice as an effort to restore that political leverage as well. And and I think he's made some headway in that. So yes, the Chinese have leverage, but it has to. We have to ask ourselves about their willingness to use it, and we also probably should conclude that um, their leverage isn't. Uh, as great as some people think it is, it's certainly greater than the Chinese say it is because they're always telling us they don't have every uh-huh. any leverage, <laughs> right. but of course they do,
0: and their willingness to use that leverage is is affected by. Their relationship with the United States, and especially the trade negotiations, which have been taking place concurrently with all of this this uh, back and forth about the summit. And of course, it's impossible unless you're really on the inside to know exactly what's happening there. But one of the effects, I think, which you know has has had an impact in Northeast Asian security of uh, all of Trump's blustering and threats, and 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 some quite serious about trade, is to affect what seems to some people to be a rapprochement between China and Japan uh, both of whom would be presumably on the sharp end of, of steel and aluminum tariffs both of whom uh, have had you know their 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 trade problems with the United States in the past uh, some people have, have suggested that, like I said, you know, the Trump administration's kind of unpredictable policies have driven Tokyo and Beijing into one another's arms. Uh, can you discuss this from a security vantage point? I mean, have we seen any shifts in on-water or ADIZ-related incidents or in the East China Sea related to, you know, Diaoyu and Senkaku, or is it too soon to suggest that there's really been any meaningful thaw?
1: So I would start by saying that the very beginning of the improvement in the China-Japan relationship really predates the beginning of progress in the U.S.-North Korean uh, relationship. Uh, It goes back to December 2014 when Xi Jinping and uh, Prime Minister Abe met for the first time. Um, And Prime Minister Abe prioritized in his own foreign policy making progress in that relationship. And you can look back now over the last few years and see that there's been some give and take. Uh, uh, Japan, for example, has uh, told China that it uh, is willing under certain conditions to participate in Xi Jinping's flagship foreign policy project, the Belt and Road Initiative. That was something the Chinese really wanted. Uh, The Japanese agreed to pursue and implement the China-Japan-South Korea summit. Mm -hmm. So Li Keqiang was in uh, Tokyo for that. And the next step will be uh, Xi Jinping's, uh, probably his visit to Japan and Prime Minister Abe will go uh, to China. That, that's the hope in in Prime Minister Abe's mind. And so we've actually seen this implemented over uh, the course of the last few years. Recently, there was a signed uh, confidence building mechanism uh, agreement as well. And Japan made uh, some concessions in that, uh, in that accord, because they had not wanted it to apply to the area around the disputed Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Uh, but they ended up saying, okay, it will apply anywhere where our ships encounter each other. They will have to engage in communication uh, and professional behavior. And I think that was a good outcome. It actually mirrors the US-China agreement that we have. So uh, this, to me, all started before the North Korea, or before the trade really, threats. Right? or before, before the Trump, the administration. Trump administration's sure. tariffs really got underway. So I would not overemphasize okay. that. That said, I do think that Japan is worried about being marginalized. Uh, he himself has scrambled to meet with uh, President Trump in the in the run up to this sure. uh, to this summit. He wants to ensure his interests are protected. And, and Japan's interests could get damaged in several ways. There's talk in the Trump administration about maybe eliminating ICBM capability of North Korea, but letting them keep short range and medium range missiles, <laughs> which, by I mean, the way, definitely. can reach Japan. That's right. uh, so that's a concern. Um, and then, of course, another concern is the abductees and that right. uh, uh, Japan is very eager to get these Japanese citizens back or to find out what happened to them because they uh, they were abducted by North Korea years ago. And so I think Japan does want to ensure that its interests are protected. It doesn't want to be marginalized. Uh, but I don't know if the whole trade North Korea thing has really made that much of a difference. Okay.
0: Okay. Absolutely fair enough. I want to look more broadly also at the security dimension of the US-China relationship as it's developed just in the first year and a half or so of the Trump presidency. And not just as it touches North Korea, but you know, just in purely bilateral terms. So- what has Trump done differently, for example, in the South China Sea? Have we seen phone ops increased, decreased, stayed steady? Uh, and of course, there's this whole business that you know General Mattis was just in Hawaii. He spoke of confronting China's militarization of the South China Sea. So give us a picture of the extent at present of of that militarization and how that plays in, uh, what the, the new renaming of PACOM now to, uh, what is it, Indo-PACOM?
1: Indo-Pacific Indo- Command.
0: Yeah, so I think that, yeah. What does that tell us about the Trump administration's general posture now toward China in in the South China Sea, which is maybe, along with Taiwan, which we'll get to, the big flashpoint?
1: Well, the Trump administration uh, has labeled its strategy uh, to the region as the Indo-Pacific, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, I think that they believe that they did not want to use the same term, either the pivot or the rebalance to Asia that was the Obama administration's uh, label or for their strategy. And they wanted to signal that India is very much uh, an important actor in the Asia-Pacific. South China Sea is certainly part of that because India has interests in freedom of navigation. It also has uh, a, a company from India is uh, has a stake in one of the blocks off of Vietnam. They have some economic interests at stake. India has been cooperating more closely with Japan. The Japanese are very worried also about uh, growing... Chinese uh, naval capabilities, operations in the East China Sea, South China Sea, and of course India worried about the Indian Ocean. So there's shared concerns there. And uh, the renaming of the command is mostly symbolic because the area of operations remains the same the pacific command has always been in charge of the area of the in the indian ocean so there has not been and it, it's not it's not the entire indian ocean because that connects to another command but the uh, renaming is in a sense symbolically important because it does signal to the region that we see all of this as interconnected. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Trump administration has used a lot of the same rhetoric when talking about the South China Sea. They talk about the need for China to stop its militarization. Uh, They talk about freedom of navigation, peaceful resolution of disputes, adherence to rules-based order and international law. So the language is the same. And in fact, just uh, today, which is June 1st, Secretary Mattis is at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, and I have not yet read the speech, but uh, my expectation is that there will be some very clear language uh, expressing our concerns about the South China Sea. And the concerns are several. One is China's militarization, so we've seen the Chinese on what we call the Big Three. It's Mr. Reef, Subi Reef, Fiery Cross. These are the really Mm -hmm. big islands they built in the Spratlys. There's a total of seven, and we have seen on the Big Three 10,000-foot uh, airstrips. We have seen uh, the installation of these shelters that are hardened that can hold fighters and bombers. There's been deployment of anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, surface-to-air missiles, electronic jamming equipment. Uh, and this is not just, as the Chinese say, for self-defense. These are power projection capabilities. Sure. And
0: A 10,000-foot runway, you can you can More land anything
1: bombers, right, in china's inventory of aircraft in inventory, right. uh, on those uh, on those runways and so the threats are different in peacetime and in wartime and the threats in in peacetime are that china can coerce its neighbors china's capabilities are far greater than any uh, of its neighbors and this just played out a few weeks ago when a chinese naval ship and Coast Guard vessel, both of which, of course, operate out of these new ports that they've created around these new islands, uh, interfered with a resupply operation that the Philippines was conducting at Second Thomas Shoal. Not the first time. It is the first time in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. We saw this in the Obama administration. And This was a rubber boat, uh, but a Navy uh, vessel that the Philippines was using to take supplies to its Marines. Uh, And we're talking about a rusted old ship that, if not maintained, would really just sink into the (laughs) water. Uh, But the Philippines is determined to maintain its position. And this is what we call, in legal terms, a low tide elevation. So it's low water at high tide. <laughs> and uh, the Philippines has been there. They deliberately beached this, uh, this World War II-era vessel, right. vessel, rusted out ship long ago. And just to stake
0: the claim, right? Just, just, just
1: to stake the claim. And so the fact that the Chinese intervened uh, is just one example of how they can use these new capabilities to coerce neighbors. And that's the peacetime threat. And then, of course, in wartime, uh, if the United States wants to gain access and have the ability to maneuver in the South China Sea, and they might need that in a Taiwan contingency, or if they were coming to the aid of Japan, um, or if for some reason they were launching an attack on China. I mean, there are various contingencies here. Uh, obviously, China wants to keep the United States as far away as possible. And so uh, these uh, capabilities uh, can enable the Chinese to have what we what we call anti-access area denial capabilities that they could use against the United States. That said, it would not deter the United States from intervening. We could, I'm sure, drop bombs and uh, eliminate these islands. Uh, but it, we would be Using munitions that we might want to use for some other purpose, um, it would take time. Uh, we would we would have to you know think about what that plan would look like, uh, but it would potentially escalate uh, to a wider U.S.-China war if we felt that we had to take those out early in a conflict. So I see the threat myself as greater in peacetime than in wartime, because when the Chinese operate and use this pressure against other claimants, they stay below the threshold that would provoke a US military response. So the US doesn't have capabilities, really. And the Chinese can just use Coast Guard vessels. They threaten Vietnam and the Philippines don't develop and exploit energy within your rightful exclusive economic zones, on your continental shelf, according to the Convention of the Law of the Sea. That belongs to them. Sure. They should be able to do it unilaterally. And the Chinese say, don't you dare. Joint development or you can't even exploit those resources.
0: Hmm. And facts on the ground continue to change and we seem impotent to actually do anything about it. What, well, all we're doing we is do? fan as yeah. you
1: mentioned. Uh, they're more effective, they're more frequent, they're more routine, uh, but nevertheless, and have that's to not, be not a strategy. Significantly
0: challenged, right? I mean,
1: no, the Chinese don't like it because it looks bad to their public. Because sure. we 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 announce them, and then the Chinese have to say we sent our naval ships and we we expelled them, we, we drove them away, uh, but. at the end of the day no it's not a real threat to china china has changed the status quo Absolutely. to its advantage mm-hmm. in the south china sea it was a very smart move it happened during the obama administration and the united states didn't do enough to prevent it or stop it
0: how much of a priority is uh, coming up with some way to meaningfully change the facts on the ground now uh, under the well there's a, a new pacom commander how how much is this going to change in, in coming years under the Trump administration?
1: I don't think that we will see much change. What I worry about is China's next steps. I think we will see fighters and bombers deployed in the Spratleys. I think um, even more worrisome to me is that eventually, I believe the Chinese will establish uh, baselines, and this is important because the Chinese drew straight baselines in the Paracel Islands. They're not really permitted under international law because they're not an archipelagic state, and like Indonesia can draw straight baselines, and if they connected as they did in the paracels I think it's something like 28 base points, and you draw straight lines, and then inside uh, those lines, they say, those are our territorial waters, and nobody can enter. Mm-hmm. That's a challenge to freedom of the seas. And that's why the US conducts a freedom of navigation operation, a FANOP, to sail right through it and say, no, according to international law, that is an international water area, and you can't deny others access. You
0: think that China is headed toward drawing those straight baselines then?
1: I think they are going to do this in the Spratlys, mm. and I think it will cause increased tension between the United States and China.
0: Now, um, what was the significance of China being, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's uninvited or disinvited uh, from RIMPAC this year? Uh, what maybe, maybe you can explain, first of all, what these exercises are and who they've typically involved and what China's participation has been in, in previous years.
1: The Rim of the Pacific exercises are held every two years. China was first invited in 2014. Uh, There's some 20-odd Asia-Pacific countries that participate. These are hosted by the United States in Hawaii. So there is multinational participation, uh, but it is a US event. And it's intended to promote cooperation among navies. And I think it was an invitation that the U.S. gave at a time when the Obama administration believed that there was value in socializing the Chinese military, working with them, even though they might learn some things about us that we might not want them to know, uh, or other navies. Uh, But the we would also learn about them and they might become more professional and that this would promote China's adherence to international law and safe operation on the seas. And I think that over time, uh, the combination of China's Behavior, militarization of the South China Sea in particular, and the change in administration, which led to a change in approach and mindset about China. We know in the national security strategy issued in December twenty seventeen, this administration said China is a strategic competitor, a rival, and a revisionist power. Right. And so, this I think has really led to a rethinking in the in the Trump administration. And in twenty. 14 and 2016, China's participation in these exercises was limited uh, to a a few elements, mostly what we would call HADR, its humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. There are some advanced exercises that take place among the allies and like-minded countries that China China expressed an interest in joining, and that didn't happen. But I have been told by people who worked with the Chinese Navy that it was a very... Successful um, cooperation, uh, just on the it,
0: HADR portions.
1: That of it. yes, yeah. that the Chinese Navy appreciated uh, the opportunity that they contributed in a very professional way, and that as the as Chinese participation advanced, that there was an expectation that they would do more. There would probably still be a cap, but that they weren't stuck at the level that they came into. You know, you'd have every country and there are some that participate for the first time. I believe that Vietnam is participating this year for the first time. So you start at a basic level and then you can expand. Uh, but as far as China is concerned, yes, there's some concern about uh, them acquiring capabilities or information we wouldn't want them to, uh, to obtain. Uh, in, in prior years... Even when the Chinese participated, they sent an intelligence ship. There was a lot of reporting about that. <laughs> that the, the Chinese were watching even as they were participating. Uh, but that's not against international law. It might look bad, but uh, it's not illegal. And so the disinvite, the rescinding of the invitation, is a slap on the wrist. There's some reputational cost for China. Mm-hmm. It's but it also actually reveals the limited toolbox that the United States has to influence China's behavior in the South China Sea. What can we do? Uh, so we want to put China on notice. We don't like what they're doing. The White House said there will be short-term and long-term consequences for China's militarization in the Spratleys. This was the short-term consequence. So now what I certainly am waiting to see is what's the long-term consequences. Is it just increased U.S. naval presence in the South China Sea? You know, we have on any given day, on average, the United States has two Navy ships in the South China Sea. Uh, this is public knowledge. Over the course of a year, we have something like 725 uh, ship days. And so that's the number of ships that are there mm-hmm. any time. So, you know, on any given day, there's two. So the United States is present in the South China Sea all the time. We could increase that, but how much higher can we go?
0: Even as China was being disinvited from RIMPAC, from the Rim Pacific exercises, another country is rumored, or another let's country, I, I, I promise you censors, I was using air quotes on country, but uh, uh, Taiwan is rumored to have been invited to participate in RIMPAC. Uh, do you know if there's any truth to that at all?
1: My understanding is that Taiwan's Ministry of Defense has submitted a request to the United States to participate. There has been discussion in the past about including Taiwan, uh, and I think that uh, the possibility might be under consideration for future years. I doubt that there will be any participation by the Taiwanese Navy this year. Uh, but in my view, it isn't a good idea to link something that we do for Taiwan and Taiwan's security with our relationship with China. Do we only do good things with Taiwan when China misbehaves? And then if China behaves well, do we do, we go do, back we do the less in Taiwan with out? Taiwan? Right, right, right. I don't think that's a good approach no, to Taiwan. No. I think we have it's an, purely
0: an instrumental intrinsic
1: it, a relationship with Taiwan. We have to decide what's in American interests in our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, but if I had been in the administration at the time, I would have pushed in 2014 for the inclusion of both Simultaneously. That would have been the, the good time
0: to do it. This right, is what right.
1: we did with the World Trade Organization. Not a comparable uh, field, of course, but that would have been the opportunity, and I think we missed it.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, we mentioned um, you know, the the potential invite to RIMPAC. Uh, what Taiwan has sent some top military officials to the U.S. Pacific Command meeting in Hawaii. Uh, and that has raised that speculation, I should I should point out. Uh, Tetris- that is not the
1: first time, I would just time. say. Oh, okay. That has I, I happened aware. before, and there have actually been pictures of senior Taiwanese military officers at various events in the Pacific Command that have been on uh, the internet. So no, not the first
0: time. It may happen more now that the Taiwan Travel Act has been passed. It was signed into law in March, I believe that was. Uh, and now there's a new... Building going up, or it's it's actually going to open this this coming month, or this month in June, uh, the the new AIT uh, building, which is you know the de facto U.S. embassy in in Taipei, um, and of course there was that sharply worded White House memo talking about uh, China's pressure on the airlines to make sure that they demarcate. Taiwan is not a country. Orwellian, Orwellian nonsense. nonsense. It was a, a beautiful turn of phrase. I mean, uh, I was impressed by that. Anyway, how do you see Tsai Ing-wen um, and her presidency so far? Um, uh, don't worry, I, I used presidency in air quotes too. I, I, <laughs> uh, Orwellian nonsense. Uh, she strikes me as, as actually having been maybe surprisingly moderate.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, I tried to convince... My friends on the mainland of this all the time, um, going back to when she was running right. for, uh, for president, uh, and uh, I have known her for years, and of course many Americans uh, have worked with her because she's been in and out of government, and uh, I don't see her as a... Person who is a radical pro independence uh, element of the DPP. In fact, she hasn't even been a member of the DPP for that long. And her agenda, I think, was very clear. Uh, she signaled early on she wasn't going to accept this 1992 consensus. She was not going to mouth the same words of one China that her predecessor, Ma ying did. But that didn't mean that she was going to pursue the kind of policies that Chen Shui-bian did, who was the first DPP president in Taiwan. And I think that she very carefully crafted a policy of preserving the status quo as she saw it. And I think now we look back, and it's now uh, uh, the two-year anniversary uh, of her inauguration, I think we can see that she has, in fact, done uh, what she said she would do. Yes. And she uh, has built, as a result a good relationship with the United States because we don't see her as the source of the problem. Uh, Chen Shuabian was somebody we thought was a provocateur. And at that time, George W. Bush sat alongside Wen Jiabao and talked about the troublemaker uh, in <laughs> Taiwan. And I think the Chinese had hoped that that is the way this would play out. And I certainly warned them that that wasn't going to happen uh, because the United States had a better relationship with Tsai uh, Ing-wen. And certainly, if she moved in that direction, then we were going to do what served U.S. interests. I just said I didn't think she would, and she hasn't. And uh, as a result, uh, the the Chinese have seen uh, the cross-strait relationship deteriorate because they have put enormous pressure on Taiwan. And let's face it, China has a huge toolbox. It uses its market as pressure on these companies. You know, Marriott was one of the first that sure. was forced to put Taiwan, comma, China, on its websites. And now we have the 36 airlines, I think, that have been asked to change their website. The Gap. <laughs> the gap, right, with the T shirts that didn't have That's Taiwan right. on the map and so they had to pull those from uh, from shelves in their
0: stores. And apologize abjectly. It was just uh, yeah.
1: They really, these companies have really kowtowed in a way that I find fairly offensive, but I understand it's their it's profit. It's their bottom line. That said, United Airlines, American Airlines, and Delta Airlines have yet Uh, to change their websites. And the U.S. government really is trying to work with them to get them to hold the line uh, and let China know that we are not going to tolerate this Orwellian nonsense. But uh, China does have uh, a lot of leverage. So we've seen pressure on uh, Taiwan's international space, participation in World Health Assembly as an observer. That has essentially been uh, withdrawn by Beijing. There have been four diplomatic allies now that have been taken away from Taiwan. There will be more. The last one was Burkina Faso,
0: Faso.
1: Dominican Republic before that, and so two in the last month. Uh, And as I said, I think there will be more military operations uh, fighters and bombers that are uh, circumnavigating, you know, the island they are just flying around uh, and, uh, and, and, and threatening Taiwan, the Liaoning aircraft carrier that's been sailing through the strait. Uh, and then the most unpredictable factor is not Tsai Ing-wen. It is President Trump in the United States, and the Chinese are very worried that they will wake up one morning and all of a sudden uh, we will have Tsai Ing-wen in Washington or you know the Secretary of uh, State in 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 Taipei, or our two presidents having another phone call, as they did when uh, President Trump is just a candidate, or oh, actually he had been elected. He is not yet yet inaugurated, and uh, I think they're quite worried about all of that, and so they can't they can't control it. Uh, and and then there's the overall trend on Taiwan of very few people supporting unification and China's um, uh, rewards, uh, the, the goodies that they hand out to the people of Taiwan are not having the impact that, that they had hoped. Uh, they still haven't given up. I think the Chinese think the time is eventually on its side, maybe not for unification, but at least to prevent Taiwan from going independent. That's what the big threat would be. And so the big debate we have is, as experts is will Xi Jinping want as part of his legacy? And now it's not just two terms, so right. it could be a longer period of time, and maybe that's a good thing. But is he going to insist on unification? And some people believe that the language he used in the 19th Party Congress last signals October exactly that. signals that, uh, that China cannot achieve rejuvenation as a great nation, which must be done by 2049 unless it reunifies with Taiwan.
0: That's right. A very big concern, and I think you know so much of what China has done. Whether it's you know the the airlines, the T-shirts, the fighter flights, it's all sensed, It's all meant to signal strongly to the U.S. This is a core interest. This is inviolable. This is non-negotiable. Is that message getting through to 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 the Trump administration?
1: Yes, I think so. Okay. You know, in a in the period when Ma Ying-jeou was president and cross-strait tensions were low. China didn't raise Taiwan in every meeting, not even every summit, That's right. Uh, it's back on the table. Or it was just boilerplate. I mean, right. now it's
0: it's yeah very much front and center.
1: It yeah. is front and center once again. So I do think that the, the, the signal, the message is getting across, although Chinese red lines aren't always so clear.
0: <laughs> Bonnie Glaser, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I've learned an awful lot. Before we pack up here, let's do recommendations, and before we get to that, I do want to remind our listeners that The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News. and if you like The Seneca Podcast, please do leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I also want to say a big thank you to Julia Roush and to her husband, Marcus, who drove out to Prague in the Czech Republic, where I happened to be, uh, visiting for some talks I was giving. they did a little three-hour drive from their home in Munich so we could finally make good on the sweepstakes prize that Julia won, dinner with Jeremy and or me. Uh, They were an absolutely delightful couple. They're just great people. They've lived in Jinan in Shandong province for a few years, and they brought six delicious craft beers from Munich that I enjoyed immensely last weekend. Your support actually means a lot to us, so thanks so much, Julia and Marcus. Now, on to recommendations. Bonnie, what do you have for us this week?
1: So, I the book that I would recommend that I have read uh, recently is uh, Howard French's book, Everything Under the Heavens. Oh, interesting. And it essentially analyzes how the past helps shape China's push for global power. And you, as a historian, mm-hmm. um, if you haven't read it, I'd recommend it.
0: I have read it. So, I, I actually have some misgivings about that book. I, I feel like... Well, I think you know he's a he's a beautiful writer and he's a very smart. I mean, he's he's there's there's terrific uh, parts, especially when talking about the, the Chinese delegations in Japan, the whole sino, the, delving into the sino Japanese relationship in really interesting ways. I feel like he maybe overstates the idea of you know, a middle kingdom mentality, overstates the idea of a tributary system, and maybe you know I think his his idea of History, uh, you know, sort of determining China's priorities is maybe overdetermined, but I, I still I think anyone should read it. I think they should read it alongside other books that have have challenged this idea. It's funny that you say he essentially does it. I think that he's guilty of a little bit of essentialism, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a fine book.
1: Well, I think that there is a great deal to be learned from. China's history and how it approaches particularly its neighbors and its periphery. I don't think it tells us China wants to be a global hegemon by any means. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, it, it is wrong to say that China simply wants to recreate history. It doesn't want to create a tributary system. China's looking forward, not right. looking back. uh, and, uh I'm trying to look up the name of another book which is on the same topic, uh, and it is by Wang Fei Ling. Oh, yeah, uh, I thought, who, read that. Uh, is an academic. And I first met him in the uh, mid-1980s when he was in China. And he was working at Kicker, the China Uh Institutes for Contemporary International Relations. He then came to the US and did his PhD. And he now teaches and has been for um, probably several decades uh, at the University of Georgia. And it's a more academic and in-depth book. The sourcing is amazing, Mm. and it's all virtually in Chinese. And paired together, I just learned a great deal about China. And yes, I think maybe Howard French overstates it, and probably Wang fei does too. But there is really, I think, a great deal to be learned from how China expects its neighbors to show deference uh, to China, to put China's interests first, that China believes that it is— um, It's not the middle kingdom, but that it's now a growing power and expects to be respected and recognized as a growing power. So it helped me to understand really the... expanding concept of China's core interests and how they deal, especially with the neighborhood. I don't think it tells us very much about how China deals with the big powers, the sure, United sure. States. It doesn't tell us what China wants to do in global governance or what role it wants to play around the world. But in terms of it in its own neighborhood, that's where I found it most useful.
0: Even in its own neighborhood, though, I, I feel like if we can understand Chinese behavior and expectations uh, only strictly in terms of a great powers relationship with its smaller neighbors, and we, 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 we don't need to look to something peculiarly Chinese maybe we should accept that definition and not have to reach for that historical toolkit. But I, I'm certainly somebody who believes that history very much matters when it comes to China, so I won't argue with you there. Uh, my recommendation very quickly is Rana Mitter's podcast, Chinese Characters, on BBC4. Uh, they're very short profiles, 13 to 14 minutes each, of 20 Chinese individuals whose lives were you know, uh, significant or emblematic in some way. I mean, they range from I mean, like, to Huang to Bruce Lee, uh, and they're they're really well done. Rana is is just a delightful presenter, as you probably know, very gifted and, and engaging, uh, and so they're a lot of fun. Um, Bonnie, once again, thank you so much for inviting me here to CSIS and for taking the time to chat. I look forward to next time.
1: Thanks, Kaiser, for having me on the Seneca podcast, and it's wonderful to collaborate with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely, let's do it again. The Seneca podcast is powered by SUPChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out some of the other great podcasts in our growing network the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the GGV996 podcast on tech and cross border investing, and the Daily Tech Buzz China podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week and take care.